Welcome to another episode of the Capital Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Beardsley, and today we have a very special show. It's the first time ever we have multiple guests. So today we have Jordan Karen from the Moynian Group, and I'll let him introduce himself and share about what, what he's up to over there, as well as Spencer Acker, who helps run his family's family office. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thanks, Rob. Happy to be here. Great to be here, Rob. Good stuff. So let's start with Spencer first. Let's talk about the inception of your family office and you know the, the background of that as well. Yeah, so our, our family office was built after we sold our family business, which was Sleepy's. Uh, we were the largest privately held uh, specialty mattress retail in the country. And you know the history really goes back to the early 30s when my great grandfather opened up his first mattress store on Midwood Avenue in Brooklyn. Uh, then my grandfather opened up his first mattress store right down the street. And that was, you know, truly the, the beginnings of what came to be almost 1,100 stores across 17 states and Chicago, up and down the East Coast. And my father came in in the 70s, and he's the one who really grew the business, um, saw it through multiple phases of growth and transformation really up until we sold the business in February of 2016. And we took no outside capital outside of some minority infusion from a private equity group in 2012. And it was really, you know, family run, family sold. And from there, we, we built the portfolio. We launched the family office in 2016. And that's where we are today. Great. And one of the things you said that we, uh, on a previous discussion that I really loved was, or maybe it was you, Jordan, but about the the way to build wealth is through concentration. The family business was obviously focused on retail mattress. And now that you've created that wealth and the family office's goal is diversification, right? The opposite of, of how the wealth is created. So uh, I think that's what we're going to be spending some time today talking about. But I want both of you guys, if, if, if you want to touch on the importance of diversification, but not going overextending yourself into things that you don't know what 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 they are. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. And uh, and Rob, thanks so much for having us. Um, this is this is a fun opportunity for for Spencer and for me. Um, so you know, just to sort of set the stage, um, I spent five years at Morgan Stanley, uh, primarily out of college, primarily across their wealth management division and private wealth management divisions. And uh, the whole sort of philosophy there is asset allocation is really where a lot of the returns and a lot of the risk is embedded. And that may seem like an obvious point, but a lot of people get caught up in actual security selection or actual investment selection. And really what this sort of philosophy does is start from a very high level perspective, sort of mapping out uh, the investable universe into different asset classes, different return profiles, different liquidity profiles, uh, different income profiles. And so, you know, sort of the job of an asset allocator uh, and, and, and Spencer in, in his capacity at the family office uh, has certainly done this. And, and in my capacity working with the Moynihan family, uh, we're trying to do this is to really sort of start with, um, you know, what are our, what are our long-term goals as far as growth and what are our long-term needs as far as income? What are our short-term needs as far as income? Um, you know, and then how do you sort of uh, put assets across the board, whether it's real estate, whether it's liquid securities and listed securities, whether it's private equity and growth equity, 
you know, the, the, the nice thing about being a family office is that you do have sort of a, the entire investable universe. So when you start with these first principles of macro asset allocation and, and asset bucketing, uh, it sort of helps inform the way that the rest of the strategy falls from there. And I think, you know, for us and, and Jordan, you, you and I always have fun looking at deals together and talking to different partners because I think because we come from two different perspectives. Um, for us, you know, we understand that the business was built over the course of 70 plus years, four generations of family members. And when we sold the business in 2016, it wasn't so much, what are we gonna do with the liquidity and the money? It was more so of what kind of legacy do we wanna leave for the Acker name and everybody that we touch in the process? What kind of people do we wanna be? What kind of mark do we wanna leave on our community around us? What kind of future do we wanna leave for our children? And that type of philosophy is embedded in everything that we do, whether it's philanthropy, investing, spending money, saving money, everything that we do is around how is our legacy going to be translated long after we're gone. And the business was built through a concentrated entrepreneurial effort, and that cannot be forgotten. The next chapter is about remembering those efforts, using those same entrepreneurial principles and drive for growth and creating a better life for our family and everyone around us. And I know I'm speaking a little bit at a high level, but it's how we look at investments. It's how we talk to partners. It's how we treat the people around us. And I think, you know, not everybody, every family office thinks that way. It's, it's our guiding principle. And, and, you know, just to jump in, because I think that that's one of the most important aspects of, of at least Spencer's family office and, and what we try to do also at the Moynihan is, uh, you know, you can be transactional and you can be, you know, deal flow driven um, and that works, that, that can be super successful. But I think, you know, especially given that Spencer and I are, are young and that we hopefully will be doing this for decades, um, you know, we start from a relationship aspect first and it's about uh, who's sitting on the other side of the table from us, what are their incentives what are they working for? Um, you know, and, and how do our goals and, and theirs overline, uh, overlap and, and you know, sort of create more value than, than each of us could do by ourselves? So when, when you start from that approach, uh, it also informs the diligence process. It informs the allocating process. Um, and then hopefully when you build really, really nice, formal, sticky relationships, uh, you know, they can be decades long and, and, and even longer. That's an interesting point. I'm sure many have heard of the idea of governance within family offices and at least the way that I've always thought about it is just more as it relates to the guiding principles of the, of the family members and how they interact with each other and how they conduct their business and obviously philanthropy as well. But I never really thought about the way that the, those sorts of uh, values and governance translate into the investing world, which you guys just both explained how it can. And so I think maybe some, some people miss that. And I think a huge advantage for people, I mean, we're all around the same age, huge, huge advantage that we have is, is time. And to go along with that, I'm very aware of how much I don't know. I was not trained to be an investor. I didn't study finance or economics in college. 
I came into a family business when I graduated. And so I needed to learn on the go. And I think, you know, admitting to myself that there's so much I don't know. You know, my father always tells me that, we, you know, we, you never stop learning. You learn until you're dead. And I take that approach wherever I go. And I'm the one in the room who's going to ask the stupid questions and the simple questions. And if the person across the table for me is willing to answer those questions, you know, often you, you highlight some things about a deal that you may have never learned before if you didn't ask those simple questions. But I'm not going to lie to myself or the person across from me if I'm not, you know, intelligent at a certain subject, whether it's real estate or private equity. I'm going to ask those questions because I'm young. I, I, there's so much I don't know. And as long as I'm continuing to learn and honest with myself and my partners and the ones I do business with, then I think, you know, the future is, by, future is bright, you know, no matter who you are, what position you're in. Yeah. And, and I love that because, you know, we, we talk about this all the time, um, but it's, you know, it's this concept of intellectual humility. And, and, and paradoxically, in order to have intellectual humility, you have to have a lot of self-confidence because, you know, for Spencer to raise his hand or for me to, ma- to raise our hand and say, you know, hey, Rob, can you explain to us what, what a debt service coverage ratio even is? And, and, you know, what does that actually mean? Why is it important? Uh, you know, help us understand why, you know, the going in cap rate would be this. And then five years later, it would be this. And, you know, these are things that these are the ABCs of your world, Rob. But for us, you know, the, this is the 101 that, that we need to understand in order to even speak the same language. Um, and so it goes back to Spencer's point. You know, when, when you're having these types of conversations, when you're asking these types of questions, um, you know, A, it's sort of from a character perspective reveals, uh, you know, how willing uh, your counterparts are to help you really get to that point and make sure you understand it. But B, you know, it also reveals how well these people understand the concepts themselves. And if you can explain it to me like I'm a five-year-old and I'll totally understand it, you are a true expert, right? And, and so that process sort of is a, is a really nice way to reveal a lot of different things. And then also, obviously, we, we try to soak all that up and, and not ask the same question twice. But, um, you know, that's definitely been a, a big philosophy of ours is to walk before you run, ask the questions and make sure you understand them before moving on. And, you know, don't just try to put up that, that bluff like we're, we understand everything from day one. Um, because that's when you make mistakes and, and in the end we'll lose because of that. Um, and, and really the simple solution is just raise your hand and, and, and take a breath. And so that's, uh, that's what we always try to do. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Definitely. I always say teaching is the highest form of learning. So like you said, when, when I or someone has the opportunity to explain something, you know, you are actually, like you said, showing how much you know, but also learning a bunch. So that's helpful in terms of obviously humility is a big thing. And, and I like that as, you know, maybe an underlining focus for us, but also that ties well into the concept of, of being a capital allocator rather than just jumping in and claiming or, or, or saying that I'm a real estate investor now, and I'm got, I've got all this money and I'm going to do these deals uh, rather than more of the way that the overall family office approaches, like you mentioned, managing cash positions, liquidity, and, and, from a higher level asset allocation, I think, and, and this is, I, I'm this way. I, I love real estate. I'm a big believer in real estate. And I think, you know, one should be, and I personally am heavily weighted to real estate. Uh, you know, a, a, a traditional wealth strategist would say, oh, this is really uh, risky or, or out of balance because you're very concentrated. But I think that's the natural inclination for real estate investors is they, they jump in and they go all in. But I think you know, unless that's what you do for a family office, that's probably 
not the way to to approach it is that right i mean listen i I know plenty of people my age who are you know the the person who will ultimately inherit the main responsibilities of the family office in the future who don't pay any attention to any aspects of the family office besides you know what they're investing in and in real estate in particular you know it's such a tangible asset class you can you drive around you see it um even a construction project it's right in front of you 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 can you can understand it by walking through the property i know plenty of people who just jumped into real estate because that was the easiest thing for them to understand and they're all in and they don't pay attention to other parts of their family office or other parts of their life and i think the way that we invest our portfolio portfolio is the same way we spend our time personally. My, my father and my business partner always preach balance. We, we don't spend so much time in one asset class and we don't spend so much time doing one thing in our lives. You know, I'm focused on the accounting, the tax planning, the expenses, the philanthropy, the family communication, the family governance, and the investments, right? And I think if I'm going to then choose a path to focus on, whether it be only real estate, only private equity, or maybe I don't do the investments and I just focus on the family philanthropy and the operational sides of things, I need to go through all the motions of learning every aspect. So I know, A, what I like, B, what I'm good at, and building a foundation from which someone else can maybe you know, be my partner or the other of the other aspects of the portfolio of the office. So I think diversifying your portfolio is is one way to invest, but diversifying your life and your approach and your time and energy is a way for you to, you know, de-risk the whole situation. And then ultimately when you've had the experience and you've had the time and you want to choose to just get laser focus on a certain topic, go for it. I'm not like everyone. I don't think everyone's going to agree with this approach, but I think the only way to really do that responsibly and effectively is to go through the motions, train yourself, learn as much as you can, and then zero in on something that you think you're really confident with. I think that's perfect. Honestly, that's a great answer. Come on, man. You don't have anything else? You know, my my only comment there would be that it's just sort of starts with how you self-identify and, and how you label yourself. So Spencer, what he's really telling you is that how he, how he self-identifies is as a steward uh, of his family's legacy, right? And that's, that's his full stop, what he's most interested in, right? Protecting what his family's already built and then investing uh, and investing not literal capital, but investing infrastructure, time, uh, and then capital into the future of what that family looks like you know, going back previously two generations and then going forward six generations. And so if that's how Spencer self-identifies, he's going to spend his time accordingly on all the different demands across that, that uh, goal. And, so, and similarly here, if my, if my goal and my, the way that I self-identify um, is as a, uh, as a member, an extended member of, of the Moynian group, um, as a steward of the Moynian family's business and legacy, you know, you don't get caught up on uh, I'm a specific investor in X, or I'm an expert in this because, um, you know, there are experts in each of those things. And, and your job is to go out there and find them and partner with them and, and understand how you can bring value to that table too. So that would, that's how, uh, again, sorry, starting from that macro uh, level, 
you know, this is who I am. This is what I'm focused on. And this is how I apply that to, to all the different things in my life. I think that's a perfect transition to discussing partnerships. You touched on it at the very end there, but I think, especially when you're talking about Spencer's approach and being a fiduciary to the family, that, that by nature means that you have to be broad because there's so many various responsibilities. And if you want to be at the head of that, then, then there's a lot that has to be covered. So I think that calls for partnerships because partnerships allow you to leverage someone's more focused expertise. But, uh, you know, what are some of the, the challenges with that? What are some of the things you look for in partnerships? Um, I think that's a really big topic. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. Um, you know, so, so I, I do agree. I think that choosing the right partners, uh, both, you know, when it, whether it's third party advisors across legal and accounting and, and infrastructure, or whether it's, it's, it's investing partners uh, as, as a GPLP or JV type of relationship is one of the most important parts of, of being a family office executive. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds obvious, but again, it sort of starts with character and, and you have to really uh, you know, trust that person sitting across from you. So, um, you know, if it's a, if it's a personal relationship or a personal relationship of somebody who you have a close relationship with that can sort of immediately give that personality and, and character credibility, uh, that's fantastic. If you're genuinely starting from scratch, um, you know, utilizing references, finding common people, uh, who can vouch for different people is, is really important. But then, you know, sort of once you get past those, those first levels of, of I, I trust that you're a good person um, and, and, you know, you don't have bad intentions, then it just becomes about, uh, you know, track record is obviously important. And, 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 you know, I think one of those classic sayings, you know, you, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So yeah, how have you navigated turbulence, volatility, uh, unexpected outcomes in your business plan? Um, you know, how adaptable are you and, and how have you demonstrated uh, that you can bring value across all different types of situations? That's really important. Uh, you know, how well do you understand uh, what's currently happening, right? And, and our job as, as allocators, it's not to predict the future, but it's, it's to notice the present and to, to capitalize on what's actually happening. So uh, how well can you distill what's going on in your world and, and, you know, sort of come up with a nice thesis of how you think that, that things are going to happen from there? Um, you know, how, what does your team look like around you and, and how do you interact with them? How do you leverage them? Um, and then how have you been a, as a partner in the past? So, you know, if you're a GP, uh, are you consistently doing what you said you were going to do? Uh, if it's a JV, are we clear about who has responsibilities for what and, and how we're going to keep each other accountable? Um, and all this is an iterative process. And then, you know, there, we can look at all the numbers we want, but at the end of the day, as an allocator, a lot of this does come down to sort of that qualitative uh, for a first-time relationship, you know, do I believe that this is going to be um, something that I'm, I'll be proud of, that that's going to be, you know, never causing headaches or, or distress or anything like that? It's something that am I excited about being a, a long-term partner? And that long-term aspect is important because, again, we're trying to be relationship and not transactional driven. Yeah, Jordan, I, I agree with with everything that you said. And I would just add that being a good partner goes both ways. And again, I'm going to reference what my, my dad has always taught me, but sometimes you meet a partner 50% of the way. Sometimes you meet them 70% of the way. Sometimes they meet you 70% of the way, whether it's a partnership with an accounting firm, an institutional bank, or an investor partner like yourself, Rob, or like you, Jordan, 
It's never one-sided. And if it is, that partnership is not going to last. And I think as a family office and a, and a relatively new family office, just this week, by the way, it was five years and since we sold our business. And the best part about that is my dad's non-compete is up. So now he's hunting for the next opportunity. Um, you know, part of being a, a relatively new family office is understanding your place in this transaction. And 99% of the times, the investment partner that we're, that we're talking to has so much more experience than we do. And it's my responsibility in that situation to reciprocate all the time and energy that they're giving me. It's not just, okay, we're, we're the ones supplying the money, we're the ones paying the fees, so we deserve you know, the, the better part of the relationship or the, or the more advantageous result. It goes both ways. I need to be a good partner. I need to answer, ask the right questions. I need to, to answer their questions timely. I need to make introductions for them. You know, it, it, this whole ecosystem is um, not a zero sum game. It's, it, it can be a situation where all parties can win. It can be transactional. So the partnership angle often gets diluted in dissecting numbers and measuring returns and measuring performance and ultimately who's paying the fees in that relationship. But at the end of the day, I'm a big believer in a partnership goes both ways. And if I'm working on a deal with Jordan and it's too one-sided, then it won't last. It, the effort has to be reciprocated both ways. And that, that does stretch across family operations and investing. Yeah. I love that point, Spencer. And, uh, and congrats to you and your family. That's, that's an awesome milestone. Thank you. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, Rob, one other thing that I think is worth sharing is, uh, you know, sort of a framework that, that, that Spencer uh, has utilized, that I've utilized. And I think when evaluating a particular deal or an asset class, it's always been helpful, which is you know, sort of four different parts and, and they're all inter intertwined. But the first is uh, trying to identify secular growth, uh, you know, thematically, right? So an example obviously is like e-commerce. Um, where, where's the puck going and, and, you know, does it have real tailwinds fiscally, monetarily, you know, societally, something like that. Right. The second is, um, you know, can you get a good entry point? Is, are, are valuations way ahead of fundamentals, um, you know, because of, of, of exuberance or is there still, is it still fairly early innings where you, where you think that there's, you know, a good entry point? Um, you know, the, the third point is if, if you're dealing with a, a transaction, uh, is there some sort of story where there's a motivated seller, uh, you know, and there's some sort of idiosyncratic reason why this opportunity is available now uh, as family offices, because we're opportunistic capital, because we can be patient capital, uh, you know, you can sort of wait for that good entry point coupled with, you know, the, the right counterparty at the right time. And then lastly is, uh, you know, is there uh, an asymmetric risk reward profile, right? So that's sort of positive convexity trade in general. Uh, where the upside is commensurately bigger than what the downside is. And this goes into deal structure. Uh, you know, for an example, as Spencer and I invested in a multifamily project uh, sort of right at the beginning of COVID, and we, we were able to, to earn a pretty significant premium on, on a pref return relative to pricing six months earlier. So that's, you know, protecting yourself with, with structure can help change the risk reward dynamics. So, you know, secular growth, good entry point, the motivated seller story, and then uh, asymmetric upside versus downside. And if, if each of those or three of those types of components come together, uh, you know, you, you start to get really excited. And then obviously coupled with the right partners uh, is how you get over the finish line.
Yeah, I and mean, that's an excellent investing framework that uh, easier said than done, unfortunately, but but nonetheless, it is it is very valuable. And, and the reason why I say easier said than done is because when you mention something like e-commerce that has true secular tailwinds, it's not a secret. And so everyone knows it and you know, the, the entry point is very stretched. And so uh, similar, I mean, pretty much there's no discounts today, similarly in, in multifamily, similarly in private equity, and you can look at the all time highs in the public market. So it really is hard to, to have uh, all those boxes checked. You might have one or two or maybe, uh, you know, three or four, but it, it really is a challenge. But that's, I think, uh, the benefit of opportunistic capital, like you said, patient capital, maybe you can afford to have a longer hold period than the market investor. And that's where you can see the deal from a different perspective and, and create more value. Because I think as an example, in my domain, in multifamily right now, if you are, let's say more of a shorter term investor or like a value add mid high teens investor, which there's been just so much money raised for funds that are geared towards that return, it's a very difficult environment. But if you have a 10 year hold outlook at multifamily, all of a sudden things look a lot more interesting because over a 10 year hold period, you are able to get 10 year debt today, very cheap, achieve a positive spread on the, on your cap rate versus your cost of debt. And it's pretty safe to say that maybe the midterm may be uncertain, but over 10 years, multifamily, the American economy will be better than where it is today and we'll experience real rent growth, et cetera. And, and that will, you know, result in, in attractive returns. So that's an interesting way to look at the current market and then, and then pivot slightly. But so everything you mentioned there, it was at the end, you said, and partnerships. So there's, there's all this stuff and then also the partnership. So what comes first in terms of both of your due diligence process? Is it, do we put in all the effort on the partnership side and make sure that that's lined up and then go seek to check those boxes on the opportunity? Or is it more of a bottom-up scenario where, oh, we like this idea. Now, does the partnership check out? I mean, for us, it's all about the network and the partnerships. You know, I, I think that the deals will come, the opportunities will come. But if my network and my contacts and the people I'm talking to on a daily and weekly basis aren't the right people, then the deals that they bring will never feel right. I read a quote that if it doesn't feel right, it will never be right. So for us, you know, my, my business partner and I talk about sectors and industries and areas of the investment world that we, we want to get into. And oftentimes those areas that we have those really broad, um, ambitious conversations are the ones that are, you know, 10, 15 years out. We don't just look for, for deals. We look for the people who have invested in the space, have run businesses in the space, um, have written articles on the space, and we learn as much as we can and we build those foundational partnerships. From there, those deals will come. If you're right about, okay, this, this sector or this area is ripe for growth and this is what the future holds, the, the deals will be there. If you're right about that, then go find the partnerships first. Go find your networks and your contact and learn learn as much as you can. And then ultimately you'll be better equipped to due diligence on a deal or to look at a deal and to underwrite returns if you have your support group behind you. And you know, so we say that if there are five units available to invest in a deal or a building or a space, 
we'd rather take, you know, maybe one or two and share the rest with a group that we've done work with so we can all grow together. For us going all in on a certain area or sector without any help or support from our network, it's, it's, it's too risky for us. And ultimately we haven't been doing this long enough to, to be the ones in that position, maybe in the future. But for now, our approach to that, um, to that Rob is to find the partnerships first, educate yourself with the, you know, the right approach and the right people, and then the deals will follow. That's just our approach. Yeah, no, I, I second that uh, completely. And I think, frankly, it goes back to Spencer's point about every part. It takes longer, though. It, it, it certainly takes longer. And, and, you know, when you're sitting on capital, it, it can be burning a hole in your pocket. But again, you just sort of have to stay disciplined. Um, and, and it goes back to Spencer's point earlier in this conversation about every relationship, every partnership being a two-way street. And, you know, good people with high character uh, who are also smart, you know, tend to you know, ha have opportunities uh, circulating them all the time. And so when you, when you give back to the ecosystem, you know, like whether it's Spencer sharing deal flow, whether it's you, Rob, sharing your thought leadership, you know, you, you post some really amazing articles about how investors can protect themselves and, you know, how to, uh, how to, how to treat a, a, a relationship, how to treat an environment where valuations have, have run wild. Uh, all that stuff is super valuable, right? So you're sort of giving back to the ecosystem without asking for something immediately in return. Uh, and if you, if you generally, you know, live by that ethos also, you give what you get, uh, you know, good things tend to happen. So I, I completely agree with what Spencer said. Start with good people, start with giving value back to them, um, and then pay attention and trust that that will come back to you in, in time. And as Spencer said, unfortunately, uh, depending on, you know, the way you look at it, it takes a lot longer. And I want to shift the conversation now to help some people listening that are operators or their sponsors, and they're looking to build relationships and, and raise more capital. And I was just at a conference last weekend, and they, a lot of people were coming up to me and saying, well, I feel like I've got a lot of the pieces of the puzzle, but the thing I'm missing is, is are the investors or the capital and how do I, you know, quickly solve that piece? I need, I need to do a deal next month or something like that. Right. And unfortunately the answer is it's, it's not an overnight process and it's, it's, it's not even a, a one year process. And so I think that is, that's unfortunate, but also it's, it's comforting because if you, if you stick with it and you put in the work, like you said, as far as providing value without seeking an immediate return and, uh, j just going out there and building those relationships, which as Spencer said, takes time. That's uh, that will all pay off in the long term. And what I love about, <laughs> about all of us being young is when I think about investing in, in knowledge or relationships, I think, wow, the ROI is so tremendous because I could build that relationship and then it could just pay dividends for decades, as you said, Jordan. So uh, I, I think let's, let's talk a little bit about how you know no no get rich quick no overnight stuff but how can people go out there and build relationships if their goal is to you know to have more access to capital and and, and have better partnerships yeah so um you know a couple things come to mind immediately the first is to the extent you have any skeletons in your closet and you're starting a new relationship just be upfront and own them whether it's a mistake that you've made in the past or you know, some complexity in your business, chances are the, the right family office partners, the right investors are going to do a lot of diligence anyway, and, and, you know, find stuff. So 
raise your hand, be upfront. If there's a mistake, own it, you know, say how you've moved on and, and you know, you won't make it again. Um, that's an easy thing. Second is like you said, Rob, I think that, you know, brand capital tends to compound over time. So uh, you can start today, you know, start, start writing, start adding value, start making introductions, start, sh you know, sharing deal flow. Um, you know, all that stuff just tends to compound and, and bring value back. And then, uh, you know, if, if you're new to this game, you, you probably do have to try to give up a little bit of economics up front. Um, so figuring out ways to, to create accretive structures uh, for new investors and new partners uh, is a great show of faith. And, um, you know, you don't have to give away the house and obviously you still have to earn a living, but, uh, you know, just showing up front that, that you're willing to, to be a good thoughtful partner and, and, you know, give value to people right away. Um, and then lastly, just, it, it just very easily is just do what you say you're going to do always, you know, be responsive when you say you're going to be responsive. Uh, if, the, if people request data room materials, if people, you know, request references, whatever the case may be, uh, deliver on what you say you're going to deliver on. And then, and then always obviously try to over deliver also. So there's no magic formula. There's no, you know, do this one trick and you'll get in millions of capital. It's, it, it really just sort of comes down to, uh, you know, the meat and potatoes of, of being a thoughtful uh, investor and a thoughtful partner. Anything over there? No. Okay. No, listen, I, 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 I agree. I, it's hard for me to give advice to GPs and sponsors Fair. who have more experience and, uh, you know, more war scars than I do. Um, the best conversations that we've had with, um, fund managers, sponsors of real estate deals are ones that are flexible, um, easygoing. Oftentimes, the best answers are from the sponsors, I don't know. Um, I, too many times people kind of talk around an answer. And honesty and transparency for us, you know, those, those are number, numbers one and two. And nobody's going to be a hundred percent perfect in their approach, but the flexibility um, and the patience to work around an issue, you know, th those will never fail. And then, you know, the last thing is, cause I'm going through a situation right now is communication, you know, just good, bad, you know, the pretty, the ugly, better returns, worse returns over budget, under budget, just communicate because soon as you forget to communicate or as soon as you fail to communicate questions you know are going to are going to be raised and nobody wants that so honesty transparency communication those three and then i think a sponsor will be able to connect to anyone yeah that's really good and the uh i had a few quotes myself that i wanted to bring up but i'm starting to forget them maybe they'll come back to me but uh yeah <clears throat> I, I think Spencer, you say, well, I don't want to give advice to people who have more experience, but it's kind of like uh, if if they want to meet more people like you and and build that relationship, right? You obviously know, like you just described very well how how you would want people to approach you and, and that relationship. So, so I think you are absolutely qualified to give that advice and tell people. Uh, one quick thing that popped into my head because Jordan mentioned having to share some economics. And I think that's important from the perspective of, uh, especially when you're talking about uh, family offices or, or, or larger private equity firms, they, they want to, they obviously want better economics, but they also on some level want to feel special. And so 
if if you can do a side letter or, or or strike a deal, which you know nobody wants to give away economics, but it can as uh, you know Spencer said, if it's a two way street and all of a sudden you you let a family office invest with you and they get a slightly better return, uh, but in turn they make introductions and and maybe even share deal flow that could be more than worth it. So I think that's that's valuable. But on the other hand, I have uh, newer sponsors approach me and ask me, well. I'm, I'm doing my first deal. So I'm just going to charge a, you know, no promote or something like that. And I, I caution them not to do that. Like you said, give away the, the farm because it, it actually raises red flags. And so that's just a quick tip for, for people listening is, uh, you know, you know, you, you can be cheap, you can give investors a good deal, but if it's too far away from market, it's just going to cause people to raise an eyebrow and, and look suspiciously at like, what's wrong with this sponsor or what's wrong with this deal. I mean, the, the issue with the mattress industry when we operated was it was driven on price, low price, big promotion, big discounts. And when you do that, it devalues the importance of the product that you're selling. Um, you know, one of the companies that we're investing, we're invested in is a company called Urban Umbrella. Um, it's a really new and modern uh, scaffolding and sidewalk bridge, primarily in Manhattan. And the battle at the beginning was, do we lower our prices to compete with, you know, the green wooden and steel shed that you see on the streets? And at the end of the day, we held our prices, you know, firm and we were 20, 30, 40% premium to the competitor. And what that did was it solidified our place as a premium product. And as long as you can deliver on the experience, then the value is going to be there. People will understand that I'm paying more because I'm going to get more. So for a new sponsor to, you know, to throw away a promote structure that works for them, you know, it's, it, it will raise questions. It will be a little confusing. So a new sponsor out there, you know, prove your value, prove, you know, why you're going to deserve to promote, what kind of time you're going to put in, what kind of effort you're going to put in, you know, how much work you've done. Oftentimes, a family office like me just wants to be reassured that you're going to pay attention to, to the project as much as possible and you'll communicate as much as possible. You know, fees, we, we never let the tail wag the dog, whether it be fees or expenses or taxes or otherwise, all those things are important. And if you're not considering those things, you're leaving money on the table for sure. But at the end of the day, let's think big picture about the project or the tasks that you, you have at hand. If a sponsor is doing a deal, a newer deal for themselves, and they want to attract new investors, the promote structure is only going to be one part of the equation. It's a part that a lot of people look at oftentimes very quickly because it's quantitative and you can wrap your head around it. But the qualitative part is so important. Um, and I would just urge you know, new, new sponsors specifically on real estate just show your value, show your expertise in the market, show how much time you're going to be dedicated to it. And I think the investors will follow, you know, the, the prerequisite to it is it's a good market and, and the demographics are in place and the tailwinds are in place. But after those things, then I think it's just about, you know, person to person, how much, how, how comfortable you'll feel. I think that's great. Um, you know, one thing I would add, Rob, is uh, you, you know, there's different ways to show, especially if you're if you're a newer sponsor, uh, you know, that you get it, that, that you have to sort of prove yourself. And one of those ways is is just sort of, you know, either changing that that structure. So, for example, maybe offering, uh, you know, a higher pref return 
to, to your LPs before your promote kicks in, right? Just to say, I want to prove it to you. And if I earn it, that's fantastic. And you'll be happy to let me, you know, have those spoils. But if for whatever, because I'm a newer sponsor, whatever, it doesn't go that way, I want you to have the best chance of recouping your, your capital up, up front. And that's just as a super, uh, super easy way to build a lot of rapport, show that you're, you're putting yourself in the other people's shoes. You don't have to, you know, put your promote down to zero. You don't have to put your fees down to zero. Um, but it's just that, that sort of thoughtful way of, of showing me as an allocator, uh, you know, that, that you understand my trepidation or, or hesitation or whatever. And this is how you're going to help me overcome that. Yeah. So, and, and just on a specific point there, I've noticed that more savvy, sophisticated investors, they'll be talking about pr preferred return, as you mentioned, more so than the promote. They are, they understand the power of that pref and the, the alignment of interest and, and how that can benefit them in, in the downside. And then newer investors, they might pick at our promote and they might say, well, it, 30% promote. I, I know of a deal that's 25% promote. And I mean, it's fair. Absolutely. You know, ask your questions and, and um, do what you can. But I think it's interesting to see that, uh, you know, the more, the more sophisticated investors are obviously pushing for that higher preferred return. And the last thing I want to just mention is, and I think it's important is that, uh, you know, as a sponsor, we want you to have real skin in the game and, uh, you know, if you're cap, if you're going to ask us to put in capital, we want you to put in some capital. Also, obviously, as a newer sponsor, you know, you may not have that that war chest yet. But you know, it, it's it's not unreasonable to ask you to be at least 10, 15, 20 percent of of an equity. Um, and and frankly, the closer you can get to 20, the more it gives gives us confidence that you're fighting right alongside us. Your incentives are so similar. Um, you know that together we're going to make this project work. Good stuff. Well, I think we'll wrap it up from there. Uh, if you guys want to let listeners know how to get in touch, if, if not, no worries. Uh, and then we'll just wrap it up. Uh, sure. I, I love having conversations uh, with all different types of investors. We always learn every time. Um, my email is jkaren, K-A-R-E-N at moinyangroup.com, M-O-I-N-I-A-N group.com. And I would say the best way to get in touch with me is either through, uh, through LinkedIn or my email address is spencer at imagineholdingsllc.com. And Rob, thanks so much for having us on. This was, a, this was a blast. I could talk about this all day and hopefully we'll do it again. Awesome. Thanks, yeah. Appreciate you guys both being on. Thanks for being on the show. All right, guys.